So I do have one handout that's going around. I think I probably do not have enough for all of you because I like tried to guess and then the morning session took a lot of them. But the good news is that the handout that's going around plus all of my other materials are all on a Google Drive. So if you have a phone, you can either scan this code and have access to it. And you're welcome to share that with colleagues or whoever you think needs it. Um, you can also, if you aren't tech savvy or you don't have a smartphone, you can email me and I will email you the link. But when I tried to copy and paste the link, I was like, people are never going to be able to type this link into their phone. Because if you try to Google Drive link, they're like a whole mess of numbers. So we have a handy QR code. Um, so send me an email, baker6ar at gmail.com if you'd like access to that, or I'll give you a few minutes to scan this and access the Google Drive um, with, it has the slides and then a number of other resources for some of the activities I'll mention, and then the sensory motor preferences handout that most of you will end up getting. So um, in addition to this housekeeping, I feel like I need to make a few disclosures. The first, my mom already, you know, a teacher. Uh, I've run into a few old teachers because uh, with a mom who teaches at a Christian school and now a sister who teaches at one, I have some cousins who teach at others. Um, I've certainly, and then I graduated from South Christian in 2007 and was a Barnes Center Christian grad before that. So I like have been around a lot of teachers and I keep running into them and they're like, what are you, what are you doing here? Where do you teach? I'm like, well, I, I don't. Uh, so I'm an occupational therapist by training, although now I get to add a little asterisk to not a teacher because I do teach at the graduate level to occupational therapy students. Uh, so I found that I really enjoy teaching and presenting and sharing my knowledge. So I started my job, our career as an OT, working with pediatrics, which is where my love for sensory processing and sensory integration really grew and developed. And I got to see firsthand how giving kids the right strategies and giving, more importantly, their parents the right strategies could make a really big difference in their lives and make them more independent, which as an OT is like my bread and butter. We're all about how can we make people be independent in their jobs of daily life. So maybe that's going to work and being a teacher, but that also encompasses being able to eat and bathe and dress yourself. Um, it goes on to include caretaking, taking care of your family, or making a meal, going grocery shopping, are all part of occupations from an occupational therapy perspective. So for your students, the role of an occupational therapy looks like how can we support students to participate in the classroom because going to school and learning is a really big and important job for your students. So that's kind of my approach. Um, the piece of that that warrants further explanation is that sensory solutions are not a one-size-fits-all. It's really more like a toolbox, where in your toolbox you have lots of different tools. You have screwdriver, screwdrivers of all different shapes and sizes, you have hammers, measuring tapes, levels, and every tool has its purpose, and every home improvement project requires a different set of tools. Sensory strategies are similar. You need a lot of them in your toolbox so that you can find the right ones to match the needs of each student. Finally, the last kind of caveat that I wanted to make is if you have a student who has a lot of challenging needs and you can't just figure out, I really highly recommend trying to partner with or find an occupational therapist where you can direct that student to so that they can have that full comprehensive evaluation to really pull apart what are the barriers to their success in the classroom because likely that's also right spilling over to the home environment. So I know it's challenging as private teachers, private school teachers, you don't have access to OTs like your public school counterparts do, which is why I'm here and why I'm hoping
and often don't require a lot of additional work or effort on your part. So I think those are all my kind of disclosures and caveats as we get started. All right, and then to transition, so let's see. With that being said, I structured this presentation with the hopes that by the end of it, you will be able to identify the three major sensory systems of the body, describe the four patterns of sensory responsivity, differentiate between types of sensory strategies, and then ultimately create some sort of personalized go-to go list of sensory strategies. You're at the end of the day, so I know you're all going to be tired, and I've presented to teachers in the past, and I have found that you sometimes are the worst students, <laughs> because you're used to being in charge. Um, so bear with me, and hopefully I can keep your attention for most of this. But to support your transition and your attention and readiness to learn, I'm going to start with a short mindfulness activity. So this activity is called the bell listening exercise. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and sit silently, and then I'm going to ring a bell. And I want you to listen closely to the vibration of the ringing sound. And when you can no longer hear the sound, I want you to quietly raise your hand. We'll continue to sit in silence for 30 seconds. And I want you to turn your attention to other sounds you hear once the ringing has stopped. All right? Go ahead and close your eyes. one of its really important roles 
is not only to, it plays a role in like consciousness and alertness, but it also acts as a filter. So any incoming sensory information travels through the reticular formation, and the reticular formation decides on its own, without your conscious awareness, whether or not to right, increase that information, it modulates that information. It either sends that information to the cortex or it diminishes the strength of that information. It acts as a filter to either heighten our arousal or de decrease our arousal of incoming sensory information. So there are going to be students you interact with who just, their brains are wired differently and they're going to respond differently. They're going to have heightened awareness of all the sensory information around them and that's going to create challenges for them in the classroom. And so my goal is for you to understand that it's not always a conscious choice that your students are making, but that it's sometimes how their brain is wired. And so we need to come up with strategies in order to shape or mold the nervous system so that it becomes less reactive over time. Another important definition or term for this presentation is self-regulation. Self-regulation is also a very complex skill. Specifically, I consider it the ability of a person to adjust their arousal level in order to attain, maintain, or change um, their arousal level and meet the needs of a task or situation. So this involves actively monitoring and controlling your feelings, your emotions, your behavior, and it also requires the ability to filter out irrelevant stimuli. So, by definition to me, this means that sensory processing is a foundational skill or ability that predictates self-regulation. You need to have sensory processing in order to effectively self-regulate. Self-regulation also must be taught. This is something that students need to learn, and research actually suggests that students learn it best by modeling. So they learn it by watching you as the adult respond to information and describe how you're feeling. And they watch your behavior and your self-regulation and that helps shape their development of it. We believe that self-regulation develops and matures gradually through childhood. So if you think about like your new infant, they are completely dependent to self-regulate. Right? They cry, we swaddle them, we hug them, we rock them, we feed them, or we give them a pacifier to suck up. We give them a lot of sensory input to help regulate them, to help them calm down. Now that infant right, grows and becomes a toddler and becomes a little bit more independent. Right Now I have a four-year-old, an almost four-year-old, right? I can tell him, you're looking really tired, I think you should go lay down. And he'll find his lovey or whatever and he'll go to his room and lay down. Some of the times, right? Other times, like the other week, we have to carry him back from the park for a half a mile while he's kicking and screaming because we've passed that threshold of when he was tired enough to adjust and now we're at the point of no return. <laughs> right? Ultimately, we believe and research shows that usually by the age of six, students are pretty much independent with self-regulation. They can identify their own needs and they can match those needs to their environment. Now, this isn't perfect. Hopefully you recognize that because you also likely have issues where you're not self-regulating well or where you lose your temper, um, right? We're all working on it. Flores actually uses the thermostat analogy, which I really like. So she likens self-regulation to a thermostat in that a thermostat needs to measure the environment that it's in and then it needs to compare that to a preset threshold, right? You set your temperature to 75 degrees in the um, summer. So it measures the temperature and it says, oh, it's 78. I'm supposed to be at 75. So then it needs 
in order to make that adjustment to match that preset threshold. Self-regulation is similar. Your students need to learn to monitor their environment, to compare this, this information, right, to compare what they're seeing, feeling, or experiencing to what they already know, that preset threshold, and then they need to use that information to choose and carry out a response. Both of these um, processes are active and intentional. Right? Compare that to sensory processing, where sensory processing is sometimes passive and unintentional, or right, you can't always control it. Self-regulation, we have a little bit more control over. Okay, so our body has eight senses. These include five external senses, which are your senses of touch, taste, sight, hearing, and smell. We call them your external sensors because the receptors are located on the external portions of your body. You can see your mouth, your hands, you can see your ears, right? Those external senses have to do with external portions of our body. We also have three internal senses that tell us about the internal state of our body. And these include interoception, proprioception, and your vestibular system. So these help you become aware of if you're hungry or thirsty. They tell you if your body is feeling like your muscles are tense or relaxed. If you have to go to the bathroom, that's all part of interoception, proprioception, and your vestibular sense. I should turn my clicker on, then it would work. Okay, sorry. So when we talk about sensory strategies, I tend to emphasize our three major sensory systems. And these are your tactile, proprioceptive, and vestibular systems. And we consider them your major sensory systems because they play a really important, vital role in the development of your body, of your body awareness, your sense of self, your motor skills, and body awareness. They also, when you're applying sensory strategies, are some of the easiest ones to apply um, and to access. So, differences in these systems can affect arousal, alertness, and behavior, especially when you have decreased or poor development of these systems. Your tactile system, your receptors for that are located all throughout the skin, on the outside of your body. These receptors respond to pressure, vibration, movement, temperature, and pain. This incoming information contributes to an awareness of our body boundaries, right? I end here and the wall ends here. <coughs> Touching the wall helps me know where my body ends and something else begins. They also help us plan out motor movements. They help improve our motor coordination. Uh, they contribute to knowledge of our environment. And especially in infancy, the tactile system and touch uh, plays a major role in development of the brain. The most sensitive areas of your body are the palms of your hands, the mouth and the face, and also your, the surface of your belly and upper chest. They have the highest density of sensory receptors, so they're going to give you the most amount of awareness. It's why, like, if you reach, right, you probably don't want to reach into your purse with your foot because you're not going to be able to tell the difference between a pen and chapstick, but with your fingers you can. You have a lot more um, receptors, so you have better sensation or more discrimination. Your proprioceptive system is located in your muscles, tendons, and joints. And it's activated by contraction and stretching of those muscles, tendons, and joints. So when you go to stretch your muscle, you have receptors in there that are responding to that change in muscle tension. You also have receptors in your joints. So when you get to the end of your range of motion, you trigger those joint receptors that help you know, like, hey, don't go any further, whereas, you know, stretch as far as we can go. This proprioceptive 
collective input, again, contributes to our body position in space, movement of our body parts and motor planning, and our physical sense of self. Proprioception plays in a particularly important role in tasks that require automatic or non-conscious body awareness, like handwriting, riding a bike, or driving a car. Think about it. When you drive a car, your foot is down below the steering wheel. How many of you can see your foot when you drive? Right, you can't. You probably shouldn't, hopefully. But yet, you have this internal sensation of how hard you're pressing on the gas pedal or whether you need to back off. You can switch between the gas and the brake without looking, and you get it right every time, right? You don't, like, magically end up somewhere else. It's this idea of you have this mental map of where your body is and how your body is moving, and that allows you to move in a coordinated fashion. When you don't have enough proprioceptive input or when that's off, you tend to be very clumsy or uncoordinated um, and can have a lot of issues with movement and other behaviors. Your vestibular system is located in your inner ear, so it's called the vestibular apparatus, and it has two organs. These organs are filled with fluid, and so gravity acts on that fluid and pulls it down, right? Gravity pulls things down. So when your head moves, the fluid moves because it's still being pulled on by gravity. So as fluid moves in response to gravity and the movement of your body, that provides your brain with information about how you're moving, the direction and speed of your movements, and this contributes to our sense of balance, um, idea of movement in space and equilibrium, our body position, again, helps to contribute to that sense of where our body is in space. It also plays a significant role in coordination and vision. It plays a really important role in vision. And my best example of this is um, if you can remember like the old VHS recorders, and if you watch a video of like when Grandpa was recording and he's walking around the room, uh-huh, and the video is like, and moving up and down. Yeah, when I walk around the room, it doesn't feel like the world is bouncing up and down. And that's because there is a direct link, and it's actually a reflex, between our vestibular system and our vision system that automatically adjusts our eye movement while we're walking or moving to help stabilize everything that we're seeing. So imagine, like, if you've got disruption to your vestibular system, you have this constant feeling of vertigo or that the world around you is moving can make it a lot harder to focus. All right, so let's pause and check in. Is your attention still here? Uh, was your mind starting to wander? If so, where did your attention go? Obviously, a little mind-wandering is totally normal and healthy, but remember that you have control over your mind. You can catch your wandering brain and gently guide it back to the present if you'd like. So, if your mind is wandering, briefly notice that, acknowledge it, and then remember that you can choose to redirect your attention if you want to. So now is a good time, if you haven't already, to pull out the adult sensory motor preferences handout and review it, or you can access it through the Google Drive, or you can look on at your neighbor. I said it again, and it bears repeating, I told you I was going to, but we are all sensory beings, right? You as teachers have sensory needs. And as you fill out this checklist, I encourage you to reflect on what your sensory needs are and how you get those met. What are your sensory preferences? What types of sensory input tends to be comforting to you and what tends to be really bothersome? And how does that influence your teaching? Right? Some of you, um, I am not one of them, but
but maybe you're an extrovert and your kids come in from recess and they are so full of energy and you are just pumped. Like, your kids are bouncing off the wall and you just feed into that energy and you love it, right? That sensory preference that you have for energy and loudness and excitement is going to influence how you interact with your students. Compared to somebody who's more of an introvert or who's had a rough day, your students come in and they, right, that same environment could be very challenging for you as a, as a teacher. Because now these students are really loud and you're having a hard time thinking and you just want it to be quiet. That's going to change your expectations for your classroom. So, I, this kind of has two purposes. One, to emphasize that we are all sensory beings, that you have sensory needs just like your students, but also think about how those sensory needs are going to influence your classroom management how you set up your classroom, and how maybe you need to set your own preferences at the door so that you can best meet the needs of your students. The other thing that I wanted to emphasize is this idea of the unique needs of your students. So you are all adults, which means that your nervous system has grown and matured and is you know, kind of stable. Students are still growing, still learning, and they have a very immature nervous system which means that while you may be able to take a sensory input or a sensory strategy and use it in a pretty small and subtle way, uh, like I tend to have a ponytail on my wrist, and when I start presenting, especially at the beginning, I tend to fidget more because I'm a little nervous and it helps me calm down. I've kind of figured out how to get a small, subtle input to help myself relax. Our students, with their immature nervous systems, are going to likely need the same type of inputs, but in a much larger and much more intense way. And that is just the way that their brains are designed to work because they are not yet as mature as yours. So, I hope by now I've laid out enough evidence for you to grasp the importance of sensory input and sensory processing. In fact, us occupational therapists tend to think that sensory processing is so important that we've even created a whole pyramid that is based on sensory processing. Um, so this pyramid emphasizes that sensory processing lays the foundation for all other skills, including body awareness, motor planning, coordination, balance, and ultimately is going to affect a student's ability to learn and perform in the classroom. Sensory needs can and do impact learning and participation in schools. And this, do any of you know the ALERT program? The How Does Your Engine Run? No, okay, so this was created by the authors of that program. That's where it comes from. In my experience, sensory challenges can look very different. Some of them are easier to pick out because the kids are in your face with all of their sensory needs. Some of them tend to be a little bit more subtle. So some examples of things to look for would be students who have unexplained differences, such as poor balance or motor coordination, unexplained language delays, or poor academic achievement. Your students who are really impulsive, who are easily distracted or easily frustrated, students who have difficulty with transitions, or even students with poor social behavior. These can be some red flags saying, hey, maybe there's something else going on. Part of the reason we can have such a variety in challenges related to sensory processing is that there are what we consider to be four major patterns of sensory processing. And this is based on how the brain responds to sensory inputs. So there are two axes that divide us into our four quadrants. The first axis is this neurological threshold. The neurological threshold has to do with the amount of input it takes 
for your nervous system to register that sensory input. So a high neurological threshold means low sensitivity. So they have a very long fuse. They have a high threshold that you need to meet or fill up before they understand or register that sensory input. Sometimes I call these students the like super big gulps. Like, you know, your 7-Eleven super big gulp that like you could fill and fill and fill and fill and it never seems to fill. Those are your high threshold students. On the opposite end, you have hypersensitivity or a low neurological threshold. They tend to have a very short fuse, so they're going to respond very quickly. Um, you might consider them like a little shot glass, right? One, you know, drip of water and they're overflowing. So you've got high and low neurological threshold based on how much input, how much sensory input they need in order to activate that nervous system. The other access has to do with self-regulation. So this is whether or not a student passively responds to sensory input or actively seeks it out. So passive self-regulators tend to allow things to happen and then they'll respond. On the other end, you have active self-regulation. These are the students who are constantly seeking out or trying to find ways to meet their sensory needs. So this gives us four quadrants and I'll dive into these in more detail. So we've got our low registration, or we call them bystanders, sensory seekers, sensory avoiders, and then sensory sensitivity, or sensors. And this comes from Winnie Dunn, she's an occupational therapist. So this is her model, that's one of the most well accepted ones in OT. So your seekers, sensory seeking. These are students who have a very high neurological threshold and active self-regulation. So they are actively seeking out ways to meet that high threshold or get the sensory input that they crave. Sometimes we also call them sensory cravers. So these are the students who just can't get enough movement, enough touch, enough pressure, enough jumping, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They crave it on a constant basis. They're very active, they're very fidgety, and they enjoy variety and stimulation. So what these students need is they need an added value to their sensory or to their um, school experiences. So providing them with hands-on activities or multimodal teaching activities where they can involve their visual, their auditory, their tactile, their movement, kinesthetic sense is going to provide them with some of that sensory input that they need in order to help them attend and behave. One thing that um, I really like about Winnie Dunn's model is that she emphasizes that each quadrant has a strength, right? Yes, there are going to be challenges that are, you know, you're going to have to address as a teacher, but these students should also be seen from a strength-based perspective. They have something positive to contribute that other students don't. So for our sensory seekers, these students tend to be great at creating new play scenarios or creative ways to present their work. Sensory avoiders have a low neurological threshold, so they reach that threshold very quickly with sensory input, but they are also active self-regulators. So they are overly sensitive to touch movement and sights and sounds, and this oversensitivity makes them more likely to retreat from unfamiliar situations. These are the ones who are going to crave those quiet spaces in the corner of your room, and they're going to actively seek them out. These students can be very rule-bound, ritual-driven, and sometimes seen as uncooperative because they have found that by creating certain rules or abiding by certain rituals, they can help control that sensory input that makes them feel overwhelmed. As a result, they may engage in inappropriate 
behaviors in order to control other sensory input. So sometimes what we see is that students who are bothered by that loud buzzing noise of the fan or who get distracted because their classmates are talking, they start to sing or hum or make other noises themselves. They use that to control their environment, right, to actively self-regulate and to tune out that distracting information. One strength of these students is that they tend to be very content to be alone. Um, they prefer environments with limited sensory input and they can be fairly relaxed when they've got that controlled environment that they need. They need decreased sensory input. So these are the ones who are going to benefit from a calmer, quieter classroom with low lighting, um, decreased noise levels. They got really quiet. It's very interesting how when that fan turned off, you guys all are like, ah. Oh. Okay. High sensitivity or sensors. So these are students who have a low threshold, which means they respond quickly, but they are passive. These are kind of the wild cards because they can be sitting there quietly in their desk until all of a sudden they explode because they didn't realize that they were being overwhelmed and now they're overwhelmed. So they tend to over, get overwhelmed very quickly and they don't know how to change their environment in order to stop themselves from being overwhelmed. So they react more quickly and intensely than others. They do tend to be fairly cautious or unwilling to take risks, and they're going to be very uncomfortable in loud or busy environments. These are the students who are probably the most challenging to approach because they actually need, and they're not necessarily going to want this, but they're going to need very structured input during everyday tasks. So these are the students that we actually want to slowly shape and apply principles of neuroplasticity to change the way that their brain responds. We want to provide structured, systematic sensory input to help desensitize them and prevent that overreactivity. So sometimes right, that might be like calming, slow, slow linear swinging, or a lot of deep pressure to help decrease that heightened activity of their nervous system and help them relax so they can participate. One side of our strength for these students is that they tend to have a very high level of awareness of their environment and a very high attention to detail. Right? which can be great, right? If you're noticing everything in your environment, you can be a great learner as long as you know how to focus that information and you don't get overwhelmed. Finally, we have our bystanders or low registration. So these students have a high threshold, which means they need a lot of input to get their attention or for them to register that sensory input, but they are passive. So these students may appear to lack motivation they're usually very slow to respond, especially if they're not right in front of you. If you say their name, it's going to take them a while to register that. Or when you start giving directions to the class, they may be the ones still left doing their own thing. So they also tend to have a poor ability to recognize or express emotions, and in general, they're going to miss more information than others. So these students need increased intensity. They need to be placed front and center in front of you so that you can make sure you've got their attention before you give them instructions. Uh, they need louder voices or increased intensity of instructions of information in order to meet that high threshold. One great benefit of these students is they have a great ability to maintain focus in distracting environments. When they want to focus, they can zone in and there's nothing that will stop them, right? Perks to everything. All right, so hopefully those kind of ring a bell and you can think of some different students that fit those patterns. Um, this is kind of a good midway point. Does anybody have any questions? Yes? Um, how often would you say roughly 
a concern that maybe we think is attention is really something to do with sensory. Oh, the question was how often is something that would be like considered wanting attention that maybe yeah, is a like sensory attention need? Issue. Attention, oh, like right. attention uh, not being able to focus. Right. Probably more likely than we think it is. Be well, and it's not because they go together. And what's challenging is like ADHD is its own barrel of monkeys where and sensory processing is another, and sometimes they mesh, and sometimes they butt heads, right? Strategies that are effective for people with sensory processing disorder are often not at all what kids with ADHD needs. Um, and I'll talk about that with like wiggle seats. There's actually more research that says wiggle seats are bad for kids with ADHD, but they can be great for kids with sensory processing disorders. So you have to meet them where they're at, right? I mean, a kid with ADHD, their brain is wired so differently, and it's um, differences in right neurotransmitters and how that brain is attending, not their ability to register sensory input. So you give them something, you know, to sit on and bounce, and they're like, hey, this is fun. Like, they're just going to get more distracted, right? So you have to be able to put on your critical thinking cast and apply these again, like a toolbox, and use some give and take as you figure out what to mean. Uh, so I don't have a good answer. That's a good question. Any other questions? Yeah. When you talk about kids being evaluated, uh -huh. does any population <coughs> do that, or like how do you, like where do you send kids where that they need to? Yeah. So I know of places because I'm in OT. Right. Um, usually, your best bet for sensory-related issues are going to be a private practice occupational therapist who runs an outpatient clinic. Um, so if you're in like the Grand Rapids area, I know there's. The Center for, Center for Childhood Development is out in Jenison. There's paper plane therapies in Grand Rapids. Um, the other one, family tree therapies also. like Usually when you read through their bios, they'll talk about sensory integration. And they should have some extensive training. Usually we consider sensory integration something that like you know about once you finish school, but you should get additional training in order to have a lot more information on it. Um, so some of it is. Right, reaching out, you can reach out to an OT program in the area if you know of one, and they may be able to say, oh, because I know like when I teach in Kalamazoo, the professors there, they know past grads, and they know, oh, this one does a great job, this one doesn't. So you could also try that sort of avenue of find an OT program nearby and ask them who they would recommend. So, good question. The challenge is sensory processing is usually not covered by insurance. So it's and that's why it's like tough to recommend, I know as a teacher, because there's this great area of Yeah. Yeah, so I'm wondering if you have any tips for building empathy for the low or high threshold. Because I think like when you identify yourself as one, mm -hmm. you really want, like I really want to understand my students, especially as you speak about them, but like how as adults can we build empathy for a child who has a really low threshold? And like it's very hard to put yourself in their shoes. And, why is it painful to put on socks, that kind of thing, you know? Like, so what, what tips do you have there as we meet them where they are? I think acknowledging that it's hard to be empathetic is a good first step. Um, and then you have to separate yourself from that emotion of it, right? Of like, I just want you to do this. We do this all day, like, I do this all the day as parents. Like, I want you to do this, but like, he can't. That's not his developmental level. And I think as teachers, you guys have a great wealth of knowledge of what's developmentally appropriate. And you already know how to adjust your expectations based on that. So it's just taking it another step further and practicing and 
finding that balance. And what I really try to do with these sensory strategies is to give you a list of strategies first that don't require special tools or techniques that you can try to implement into your classroom starting on Monday to help improve the whole culture and the whole mood of your classroom and see where those go and then kind of from there triage other issues. Um, yeah. All right, so these, I've grouped them into six categories and they are meant to complement each other, right? So they are meant to be used in connection with each other. So these six strategies include considering how to integrate strategies across school settings, use of multi-sensory teaching, consideration of your classroom environment and routines, suggested sensory tools, tips to improve home carryover, and then some specific manualized programs if you're looking for more resources. So this slide kind of serves as a reminder that your school and participation in school is much larger than your classroom. Right? School extends to the hallway, gym time, lunchtime, recess, even riding on the bus. And each of these areas have their own sensory challenges, or you could also consider their own sensory opportunities for your students. In general, unfortunately, most schools have become less sensory friendly. There are fewer opportunities for outdoor time and active play, and this is true not only for school, but also at home. So this means that students are likely getting less sensory input than they need, and instead of experiencing the world through their senses, through their hands-on activities, they're viewing it through a screen. And so we need to try to figure out how and when we can implement sensory strategies, not only in the classroom, but also in the hallway, during lunchtime, during recess, to meet the needs of our students. Alternatively, you may need to consider how the needs of your students are going to change when they come back from one of those activities. Right? The school bus is a great one that I remember when I was working in school-based practice, that like kids just Either they're going to melt down before getting on the school bus because they right, are anticipating that challenge, or when they get off the school bus in the morning, they're just like amped up because of all the movement, all the noise, all the echoing, right? If you think about these poor kids who like are just sitting there bouncing, their bodies are probably tired from just like bouncing and not having a lot of support. So we need to adjust what we expect of them and provide them with some of the strategies that I'll talk about in between these transitions or considering these different opportunities. Multi-sensory teaching. While research is inconclusive about whether or not teaching students in their preferred learning styles, so I'm talking about the VARC, the like visual, auditory, kinesthetic, research actually does not suggest that like, oh, if you're a visual learner, I need to teach you visually and that's how you're going to learn best. That's actually not true. But what is true and what research has shown solidly is that all students benefit from multi-sensory teaching. The more ways you can present information, the more your students are going to benefit. So this is a great way to not only improve students' learning, but also meet some of those needs of your students without drawing attention to it, or without needing to invest in costly equipment or risk adding in some distracting sensory element. So one study I came across actually taught spelling words using shaving cream, pull-apart Twizzlers, painting with a Q-tip, and Cheerios. And over the four weeks of that intervention, um, they actually saw statistically significant increased spelling test scores. And right, you're also making it fun. You're increasing the motivation of your students, and you're giving them some of that hands-on learning without a large investment. You know, there's probably some more mess, but you know, now you've added in this opportunity to like do some heavy work washing your desk afterwards. Like you can build in some of these strategies to your classroom teaching. So consider 
how you might be able to integrate visual, auditory, tactile, or kinesthetic input into your teaching and learning activities. Um, hopefully for as elementary students, or elementary and middle school teachers, this is a little easier. I tried to do this with my graduate students, but they're not super excited to like act out skits and plays. Um, although I like still have distinct memories of being in first grade and doing, you know, Joshua walking around the wall. They write that it matters. We remember those things, and it fills our sensory tanks. All right. So um, for those of you who are really visual learners, these mind maps are really fun to help kind of make connections. And um, you know, right? so I've tried to add some visual elements to keep your interest um, and improve your own learning. All right, so this is our third category, classroom environment and routines. So another great place to meet the sensory of your needs, the sensory needs of your students is through adjusting your classroom environment and your classroom routines. So this will include considering the physical attributes of your classroom and making adjustments to minimize some of that bothersome stimuli. So consider what is the noise and activity level? How much visual stimuli is there? Are there any smells? Trying to minimize those can help improve student mood, student performance, and attention. I actually found one study where they installed sound-absorbing panels and they replaced the fluorescent lights with halogen lighting. And when they measured the attention of four like, high school-aged students with ADHD, they found that not only did their attention, engagement, and classroom participation improve, but they also reported feeling more comfortable and improved mood. And so simple swaps can help with that. This may not be feasible for everyone, but you could consider in adding floor lamps or light coverings, which are a little bit more inexpensive. Or maybe there are times of the day where you could turn off the lights altogether and rely on natural lighting. You can right, change, ebb and flow the environment of your classroom to meet the needs of what you're teaching and what you what you want your students to, how you want your students to behave. Sometimes you need to model or create the right environment to produce the right result. Um, you can also Support your students by creating clearly defined spaces, so using placement of furniture, rugs, or even brightly colored tape. You can build sensory input into your daily routine through readiness exercises or movement between transitions or to get at supplies. Adding in heavy work movement breaks can be beneficial. And then ultimately, creating a sense of predictability can be beneficial as well. If students know when they're going to get a break, they're more likely to be able to stay focused for that period of time until the break that's coming. So, classroom environment, an ideal classroom environment, 20 to 50% of your wall space should be bare. So, we're aiming for this, not that. Um, adding in clear physical and visual boundaries can help students know where they're supposed to be. Again, adjusting or monitoring the lighting, noise level, and smells. And if you have space, creating some sort of accessible quiet space can be really beneficial for those students. Um, as I mentioned before, tape can be really beneficial to help students understand and reinforce appropriate boundaries. Um, I love I love visuals. I worked with kids with autism, and one of the best evidence-based strategies for kids with autism is visual supports. But I think that they are beneficial for all of our students, right? You say one thing, it goes in their ear, out the other. They're like a goldfish. They remember it for 10 seconds, and then they don't. But if we give them something permanent, it's going to improve their memory. They can't do what you want them to if they don't remember. Um, so adding in some visual boundaries can help, right? That can be in the classroom or also in a larger space. These are the light coverings. They like have little magnets and they attach to your ceiling. Or for noise level tennis balls, if you put them on the bottoms of your chair, it can help reduce the noise level in your classroom. 
readiness exercises that are easy to implement. So we've got palm presses. The goal between, for these readiness exercises are to add in some movement, particularly to try to add in some deep pressure or proprioception. So palm presses, you just have students right press, and you should be able to feel it in your shoulders, which are <coughs> the second largest joint in your body. Um, another one that's good for deep pressure is the chair push-ups. So you have students who are supposed to be able to lift their legs off the floor and then push their bottom up off their seat with their hands. Again, adding in a lot of deep pressure through the upper extremity in your shoulder. Um, Hookups are from brain gym. So by crossing midline, you're trying to activate different areas of the brain. Have you guys seen this one? You know, there's not, research on these are inconclusive, but it's also pretty harmless, right? Doing this for five seconds isn't going to create a super large disruption in our classroom, and so it's possible that the benefits should hopefully weigh out the possible consequences. You can also get creative, right, and put, like, do wall push-ups and have students have the opportunity to do them as they're coming in and out of the classroom. Make it fun, make it enjoyable, and give them ways to get some of that deep pressure that we find tends to be calming and organizing for students. Carrying on that deep pressure, heavy work is a great way to add in proprioceptive input, which again helps to be organizing or helps students focus. So carrying heavy objects, getting them to play on the monkey bars, or play tug-of-war at recess time, washing desks or windows, or stacking and unstacking chairs. You can get in a lot of active work. In general, we say active is better than passive. So being able to do work that involves resistance is better than sitting passively under a weighted um, blanket or a weighted lap pad. Not that there isn't a time and place, but when you can give students movement, you're going to be better off. And then predictability. So using a schedule, using timers, learning resources has some really cool sand timers that I like because they're quiet and a little less obtrusive. Or even involving music, right? Having certain songs that designate times of transition. Um, they can A, will signal that transition, but also give students that warning. Sometimes I think we underestimate that students need time to finish their thought, just like we do as adults. If someone comes to you and says, hey, will you go do this? I don't just like hop up from whatever I'm doing and go, even if it's you know relatively time sensitive. I'm usually like if I'm on the computer, want to type out my last thought or finish my email. Students are the same way, and we need to extend that grace of giving them or building in appropriate transitions so that they know what to expect and have that predictability and can respond appropriately. After you've tried those, so after you've considered integration across school settings, multi-sensory teaching, classroom environment and routines, then maybe you'll consider adding in some sensory tools that your students can access at different times during the day. Remember that while these can and probably should be enjoyable, they are meant to be tools and you can and should as the teacher take them away when they become a toy. Right? Just like a pencil can be a great tool, it also can become a toy. Um, you know, so you need to, what's, the pros and cons of this is that it does require more intentional instruction on your part. You're going to need to teach the students what it looks like when they're using a fidget tool correctly and what it looks like when they're using it like a toy. And you're going to need to create boundaries about how and when to use them and create some sort of classroom contract or um, expectation. Um, so some sensory tools that I found to be beneficial, access to different snacks like crunchy carrots, carrot, um, or apples or pretzels can help improve mood and meet some of those sensory needs, as can water bottles, especially through a straw. Um, using Lycra or resistance bands, sometimes you can tie like a TheraBand around the, the chair of a student's desk and they can use that to like fidget or add in resistance. 
I've seen sometimes people who like um, hand fidgets put a piece of Velcro underneath a desk and the students can get that for tactile input um, to help them focus. Fidgets, there are many fidgets. Dynamic seating options, this is the one where they can be really beneficial, but they can also be distracting. So you have to know your students, you have to know what you're comfortable with as a teacher. What I will say is probably more important than a dynamic seating option is making sure that your students are sitting correctly. And by that I mean they should have 90 degrees at the ankles, knees, and hips. So, right, um, you, they should, their feet should be flat on the floor, their knees should be bent at 90 degrees, and their hips should be at 90 degrees. And if they aren't, it's helpful to try to find a chair that's maybe more supportive or that's the right height or maybe give them a footstool to put their feet on. Because when your feet are dangling, and none of you know this because you're all on appropriately sized chairs, but how many of you are like short and have sat in an airplane where your feet are like dangling? It gets really uncomfortable. Or like at the table, something when I coach parents, like if their child is having mealtime behaviors, if their like, feet are dangling, it's really uncomfortable to sit like that for a long time. And it's going to change their ability to focus and attend. And so we need to meet those needs and provide them with the appropriate postural support um, especially if you're their like wet noodly kids who are often your sensory kids as well. And then mindfulness activities. So like the bell ringing was a mindfulness activity. Um, just checking in, giving your students one. For those of you of older grades, I came across a great idea where you actually give control to your students. So you give one student the bell and they can ring it at one point anytime during the class. And you as the teacher have to stop immediately and the students get to get up and get a stretch break. Uh, right, it gives them a little bit of that control and predictability, especially because as teachers, we can be like, I, gotta, I only have seven more minutes, I gotta get through this, and you're gonna like keep going, and the students, they're not hearing a word you say because they're tired and done, right? So it gives them some of that control and allows them to get that movement break or that stretch break that they need. Um, body scans and muscle relaxations, I have another number of scripts on the Google Drive if you're interested in those to help increase awareness of the body of your sensory systems, of how your body is feeling. And while sensory tools have inconclusive evidence, there is a lot of evidence to support mindfulness training to improve learning, attention, focus, and behavior. Being aware of how your body feels, which I'm including this because, right, how your body feels is sensory. And being aware of your senses is going to improve your students' ability to attend. It's going to improve their awareness of like, hey, this is bothering me, or I'm carrying around this stress. Um, and then with that, deep breathing is another great activity. So here's, right, fidgets, wiggle cushions, water bottles, weighted lap pads, snacks, gum, tea stools. This is called a um, body sock. Have any of you seen these? They're so, I love them. Like students, it's fun because they get to control how much input they want. And so it's a square and it's all made out of lycra and they can stretch like a star and depending on how hard they push, it's going to push back because it's made of lycra. Um, you can also get some like lycra tunnels. The downside is lycra is kind of expensive. Um, and then mindfulness activities. I really like this is called the lazy eight. Um, so it gives right students that visual cue for breathing. You breathe in, and then you breathe out. Because how many of your students when you say take a deep breath, <laughs> right? Like they don't know how to breathe. We have to teach them. Um, another way for deep breathing: smell the flower, blow the pinwheel, or even thinking about blowing bubbles. This would be a calm down jar. I like this, right? Telling students to turn on their spidey sense and think about how their body's feeling. What do you see? What do you hear? What do you smell? Help, right? That mindfulness, bring attention to how their body is feeling so that they can learn to pick an activity to meet the needs of their body. 
um, the bell ringing. Another one I saw was like your heartbeat. So having them think about and like measure their heartbeat and then do jumping jacks and then have them measure their heartbeat again. Right? Again, you're increasing that awareness of how your body changes in response to different situations and how that influences what they need. All right, so some general calming strategies. In general, slow movement, slow sustained heavy work, soothing smells, reduced noise and light levels tend to be calming. Strategies that tend to be focusing, um, I think about these as like if you're on either end, they help bring you into that just right area for focus and organization. So focusing activities, a lot of deep pressure is what we're looking at. So like vibrating wiggle pads can sometimes help. And then proprioceptive activities that involve pushing, pulling, carrying, sucking on hard candy, chewing gum. And then alerting techniques. So if your kids are looking a little sluggish, maybe you turn on some bright lights, open a window, right? I think about like driving home late at night. You roll your window down and get the like cool breeze to keep yourself awake. Um, sitting on a ball or standing can be tends to be more alerting, as does drinking ice water, loud music, strong odors, and then adding in visual stimulation. For parent supports, I encourage you to think about sending sensory strategies home or giving suggestions for students to use them during like homework time. Um, suggesting to parents right ways to incorporate movement breaks at home, especially if you know it's a student who tends to be more sedentary at home and isn't getting that activity they need. Um, and then also if you right, have involved parents, maybe parents can send in specific snacks or can give you feedback on what they find their students benefit from. And then some specific programs that I find useful I will say the zones of regulation is my kind of preferred social emotional self-regulation tool. In the morning session, a lot of them were familiar with it. Yes? Okay. I told them, like, you can't go wrong. It's written by an OT who went to get her master's in education. So this is her master's thesis project. Um, and I got to watch Leah present, and it's just a great one. And what I love about the zone is it's emphasizes that there is a time and place for every zone, right? When you are at a football game cheering for your favorite team, it's okay to be in the red zone, right? You are going to be angry and mad and excited, but that's probably not the right state of being to be for the classroom. And so it's all about, right, identifying what zone are you in, and there's no bad zone, and then how do you adjust your body to get to the zone to match the needs of your experience or your environment? The ALERT program is similar. It's also called the How Does Your Engine Run? Every Movement Moment Counts is, was created by a group of OTs and teachers out of Ohio. Um, it's like a really large scale statewide initiative and they have a really great website with different strategies for incorporating mindfulness and um, other strategies into the school and across the school to improve mental health. And then, this is a new one I have not heard of before, but drive-through menus um, have some different like activity strategies. Um, so these are all kind of fun, specific programs you could try. If you download the slides, all of the pictures are live links, so you can click the picture and it will take you to that website. So, I included this and I put it last because I knew I'd run out of time. Um, but ultimately, I want you to remember that behaviors exist for a reason. Sometimes you may need to try to pull in a psychologist um, or someone who can help you right, define the behavior and do a full ABC. Maybe that's your like um, student support services or your special ed teacher. They usually have a lot of skills with that. And then remember that while behaviors can exist to get something, escape, or communicate, behaviors can be present because of those internal sensory needs. Behaviors can be driven by their sensory needs, whether or not a kid's able to articulate that. So it's not always an either or, but it is sometimes both.